from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hello, hey you. Here's Cindy Isabek from The Washington Post. Hi, this is Beth Reinhardt at The Washington Post. It's Lori Artani over at The Post. I'm good. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, March 11th. Today, the students that have disappeared during the pandemic and finding joy in the time of COVID. I actually started noticing this phenomenon in the spring that there were kids that a lot of teachers just couldn't find after school reconvened. Mariah Belingit covers education for The Post. For example, in Sacramento, which is my hometown, there were about 2,000 students who went missing in between when schools closed and when they reopened four weeks later. And when I say reopened, I mean virtually. So I had noticed this in the spring, and I had was curious to know if this was an issue that would resolve itself over the summer, and it was not. There were a lot of school systems that were having difficulty tracking down kids, and there's a lot of pre-K and kindergarten students that they expected that did not show up. In October, Mariah spent some time with officials from Detroit Public Schools as they tried to track down these kids. At that point, there were around 3,000 students that couldn't be accounted for. A lot of these students had been chronically absent the year before. So this was something that was unfortunate but not surprising. Mariah talked with producer Renny Svernovsky about that trip. So tell me about the people you met in Detroit. I like they put my name on the list too, Kenny and Mariah. <laughs> like I work for the city. <laughs> do you mind if I record you too? Because we sometimes we do a podcast, and it's just helpful to have. Also, if my hands get too cold and I can't write. I went to Detroit to spend some time with a man named Kenneth Chapman Sr. He works for the Family and Community Engagement Office in Detroit Public Schools. And he's trained as a social worker, but his job is basically to build bridges in between schools and parents and schools and communities. Yeah, it's like... It's rewarding when you, when you, when you see the impact, when you can see the impact right then and there, especially with the parents who, who, who are trying desperately, but just like hands pretty tired, like I don't know what else to do. So lately, what that has meant is he is now part of a team that is sent out on what they call campaigns. They are given lists of students. These are students that, in some cases, have not shown up at all, have stopped showing up, maybe showed up a few weeks ago but haven't shown up since, or are just chronically absent, because they want to see if there's something like a barrier that they could easily resolve. And so these are kids who have not been to school? Who have not uh, like checked in, in online um, more than one time, I believe. So I met up with Kenneth at a high school in Detroit, and I loaded into this enormous Detroit Public Schools van with him 
He and a bunch of the other employees and a bunch of volunteers had these matching blue jackets, these blue felt jackets, I think to make them seem less intimidating because they also don't mm-hmm. want to appear like like an authority or something that people might be hesitant to open the door for. Right. So we want all three of them because, you know, a lot of our parents, and I'm noticing that when it's just me, they'd be hesitant to open the door because, you know, they may think it's uh, CPS or mm-hmm. DHS. And so they may just be a little hesitant. So I'll let the family know what we're doing, and then I'll just wave you guys over. Okay. But I don't think nobody's going to be here anyway. And he had a list, and we went from property to property to property looking for students who had not shown up for some period of time at that point. And what was Kenneth looking for specifically? Like, what would indicate to him that a student was actually home? It's really interesting because the people who do this work are sort of like detectives in a way. I mean, I, so what I, I, um, I don't think nobody's going to be here, mm-hmm. but I'll check in. Because so two things I notice when I come to a house, I see it's a bunch of mail. And normally I saw the sign that nobody else lives there. And then on the window, I see newspaper. Mm-hmm. But we're still going to go. Um, so what Kenneth so would I'll look do. for was things like toys in the front yard or bikes, because oftentimes he was given addresses that were old addresses, places where the kids no longer even lived. But if we saw an indication that a child lived at the house, he at least knew that there was a high probability that the child he was looking for still lived there. We'll leave this at the house. It's just a bag with some resources in it, mm-hmm. uh, some information as far as how to log on if they're having issues with their device, as well as some flyers for a uh, trunk and treat. Uh, some links for some uh, tutoring help. But we also came upon homes that were abandoned or were under renovation because a lot of times kids in these circumstances, their families move, but they don't update the school system as to where they have moved or they might be homeless or they might be staying with relatives. So part of their job is to try and figure out where these kids have ended up and to make sure that they're still going to class. And they are really anxious to find these kids because they're concerned about their well-being. And then the other piece is that they don't get funding for students that do not show up. So it can end up having a huge impact on their revenue. See, I don't think a lot of people understand the importance of count day. I don't think they understand everything that it affects. It affects the um, funding for the school, the supplies they get, the amount of teachers they get, the, uh, the books, the, like everything. And so the thing is, if we miss them on that day, but they still come to school, they gonna still come to school. They don't we don't get funding for that child, but they still we still gotta provide everything, you know, for the child still. So it's like kind of. Yeah, that's why you want him to get get the yeah. excuse absence note. So what are the numbers looking like right now for these students who are missing across the country? The data on this, as with everything related to the pandemic, is incomplete. Part of what I learned from reporting on this is that districts, for example, don't always communicate with one another when kids move across district lines. I thought, and some states do do this, they have sort of a central repository where they track all students from the center of the state. So that way, if a student moves districts, they know that that child is going to class, even if they're not showing up where they went, where they attended school last year. But that's not the case. Uh, That's not the case in Michigan. It's not the case in New Mexico, which is another state that I looked at. 
And so it can become really difficult to track the students. And I think in some cases, schools are hoping or assuming that students that have stopped showing up have ended up in other school districts, but they don't know for sure a lot of the time. So there's no assurance that those kids are healthy and safe and learning if they can't figure that out. And I guess, how does this differ from, you know, like the typical year? I feel like schools have always had to track down missing students. So what about this year is different, maybe as a result of the pandemic? Yeah, so schools have always worked to track down missing students with varying levels of success and varying levels of efforts. What's different about this year is that there are so many students missing that schools have had to develop entire protocols to find them because Mm. they can't just leave it up to one school counselor or one attendance officer to track down that many kids. And the other thing that was interesting is that, for example, in New Mexico, I spoke with somebody in their state Department of Education. They were missing 12,000 kids at the beginning of the year. New Mexico is not a huge state, so that's a pretty extraordinary number. And she assumed when she saw that number that it would be mostly high school students, you know, mostly kids who had just decided to stop going to school and maybe there was nothing legally the state could do about it. Or Mm -hmm. it's just more difficult to get you know, a teenager to come back to school, but they were actually spread across all grades. So yes, you had some high school dropouts, but you also had second graders and third graders who were not showing up. And that to her was really alarming and really shocking. There must be so many barriers this time around. It must be hard to know if a kid you haven't seen is having trouble accessing remote schooling because they lost their laptop charger or they don't have Wi-Fi or if they're missing because of some dangerous or precarious circumstance or if they've just moved. Yeah, and this is part of the reason that districts are now sending more staff like Kenneth door to door to actually track them down at their physical addresses. In the past, this kind of engagement might have involved a home visit, but more likely it would have involved a phone call. Home visits were really reserved for the most extreme cases, Mm -hmm. but now there's a lot of extreme cases. And so Detroit has developed this whole system where they gather volunteers and other school workers and they send them out with these long lists of people so that they can figure out what's going on with the kids. And oftentimes they do find them and the what's keeping them from school can be simple but insurmountable. God, it must be cold in there if that window's broken or maybe they have like wood on the other side. Um, no, I don't think there's no wood there. Cause I- I remember when we came the first time, they had a cord running from the, the car to the house. So a lot, that's another issue that our parents, are, some of our family experienced. They had a laptop device that don't have power at, the home, at home. So she was running a cord from the house so that they could power up their like laptops mm-hmm. and cell phones. Kenneth had told me that the week that I did the ride along with him, He had rolled up on a house where there was an extension cord sneaking out the front door and connecting to the car because they were using the car to plug in their devices because there was no power in the home. This was in late October, so not exactly the winter, but it was cold. And I also noticed that at the same house, there was holes in the windows. There were cracks in the front windows. So I just couldn't imagine like how cold and uncomfortable it was inside. And when Mm -hmm. we got there the following day, when I was with him, the family was no longer there. 
So what do you do if, you know, a family doesn't have power and can't afford the bill? They would try and connect those families with services that could help them pay the bills. But, you know, that's that's a pretty basic thing, but it's also a difficult problem to solve. What about with the students whose problems are surmountable when they're found? What happens to them? Like, what, what's Kenneth able to do? And these other people who are going door to door to try and find them, what are they all able to do? I'm like, I love when I get to a house and it's a student that hasn't been logged on and you get them logged on right there and they finally get to see their class and hear their hear they teacher and you see the excitement in their eyes. It's, hopefully we, we get those a couple of those uh, situations today, but that's the best because, I mean, the students want to be in class. So Kenneth and a lot of other workers like him have become sort of like roving IT staff. I guess you might call them like a geek squad for schools. <laughs> what's, is, what's the typical reason that kids aren't going to like logging in? Is it just like a purely like a tech thing? Um, nine times out of ten. Oh, really? Okay. Either they don't have a device because they missed the, the date that their device was uh, supposedly picked up. Um, don't have a device, device is broken and unable to log in because of their username or password. Those are the three typical situations. Or you'll get students who say, um, we were logged on. You just like didn't register them? These interfaces are really difficult to use for some people if they're not familiar with them. If you're a college student and have ever dealt with an interface like Blackboard, you can understand. Mm -hmm. Now imagine being eight years old and having a parent that's equally inexperienced. So sometimes it's something as basic as that. And so he can call the IT desk and like get them re-logged in or get them new usernames, whatever they need. And sometimes they just need to replace the devices. That's something that they're really serious about. So in the fall, they actually rallied a bunch of private businesses, large businesses in Detroit, to donate enough money for something like 50,000 laptops. So they really are trying to get laptops into the hands of every child. But, you know, sometimes the laptops break and it just has been difficult to get the laptops into the hands of students. And then what are the consequences when a child can't be found? I guess both for the school system and, you know, for that child. Well, obviously for the school system, it means a financial hit. But in many of these cases, these kids were near and dear to somebody's heart. You know, oftentimes teachers refer to their their kids. They don't refer to their <laughs> students. So mm-hmm. I think it probably, I would imagine that, it creates a sense of anxiety and worry for the educators who dealt with that student. It also creates, in some cases, a sense of frustration. I've talked to an attendance officer who just got, felt like sometimes that the parents weren't trying, but you know, oftentimes they were in circumstances that were really difficult. Um, one woman, her husband was deported and she couldn't get a job because she had a newborn baby to care for. Mm-hmm. And she was about to be evicted from her apartment. And in the midst of all that chaos, she could not figure out how to get her kids logged on. Did you hear from any experts about what the learning loss could look like down the road and what consequences there are for these kids if they're not getting back into school? Yeah. I mean, when we talk about learning loss, we're not just talking about kids who are missing. We're also talking about kids who are in virtual learning that's inadequate in a lot of ways. So some kids are not getting very much live instruction, for example, 
or they have bad internet so they can only like watch YouTube videos online. And a lot of them just need to be in a class to learn. Mm-hmm. This is just like other parts of the pandemic. This is disproportionately impacting students of color and um, students from low-income households. We had already had something that they called the racial achievement gap, which is the gap between Black and Latino students and white students. And it seems to have only gotten worse with the pandemic. So people are talking about just how devastating this could be for their job prospects and then ultimately for our economy as a whole if we are not able to get a lot of these students caught up or at least back in the classroom. Do you think that this problem of missing children will inform the debate around whether and and how soon we should reopen schools? Yeah, I imagine that this is one of the statistics that people who want to reopen schools sooner are using to argue that we should reopen schools. My story dealt with some of the most extreme cases where kids may not have shown up for months, may not have been seen since last March. But there's also cases of chronic absenteeism, kids only showing up 10 or 20 percent of the time. And those students aren't really that much better off than students who are not showing up at all. At the very least, teachers can lay eyes on them and assure that they're healthy and and safe. But it's really difficult to give instruction to students who are rarely showing up and who are living in environments that are not conducive to learning. So, for example, the woman I spoke to, whose husband had been deported and she had been unable to work, Her kids did not show up for virtual school for two months, but the school recently opened and the attendance officer got back in touch with me and told me that she had moved in with her sister, Mm. her life had stabilized, and that the kids had shown up every single day since the school reopened for in-person learning. So it's difficult to say for all of these kids that in-person learning will make a difference, but it certainly made a difference for those kids. Mariah Belingit covers education for The Post. Renny Svernovsky is a producer for Post Reports. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. And now, one more thing. I'm Kai out of Oakland, California, and I've been eating a lot of stovetop popcorn this year. It's so good. I love popcorn. 
It's been exactly a year since the World Health Organization declared the coronavirus a pandemic, and everything about life as we knew it completely changed. We asked you how you have found joy in a year unlike any other. Here is what you told us. Hi, my name is Andrea Banyas, and I'm from Stanford, Connecticut. My name is Diego Tejeda, and I'm from the city of San Miguel de Allende, Mexico. Hello, this is Rosie Martinez from Brea, California. What brought me joy this year was adopting two kittens, brother and sister. I really, I truly enjoy my morning jogs, my cup of coffee during breakfast, beer. Indulging in the guilty pleasure of sleeping late. During this pandemic, I have sparked joy by becoming more intentional and committed to reading. I get up sometimes at five o'clock in the morning and just start reading a great book. And that sparks so much joy for me. I did start a new hobby, which is houseplants. I went from having perhaps five houseplants to having 45 houseplants. I've thought about my favorite meals that I've had while being abroad, and I've tried to bring those flavors into my kitchen. I've been inspired by schnitzel that I had with bruschetta in Florence, the Velselka pierogies in New York City. Each of these dinners have brought me back to that place. So I really took this pandemic as an opportunity to write my first science fiction book, which is about a queer boy who, amongst many other challenges, has to slay an interdimensional demon in order to end a plague that is ravaging his planet. Hi, my name is Rain, Los Angeles, California, mom of four, having four kids home on Zoom school quarantine has been challenging to say the least. So. I celebrate and keep my sanity by kicking and punching a heavy bag, and it's glorious. My name is Greg Fitzpatrick from Stockholm, Sweden. I'm 76 years old, and in order to get through this, I made a resolution to write a short melody and create a visual for it every day of the year. Listening to all of you, we noticed some common themes. With all of this time at home, people picked up new hobbies and became active and tried to get outside. I'm talking to you from the Hoodoo's Trail of Banff National Park where I can see Tunnel Mountain on my left and the giant mountain range that is Mount Rundle on my right. We're still in snow here. And this is where I've spent quite a bit of time in the pandemic. Listener Sonia Lee took us to her favorite spot in Alberta, Canada. After a devastating year, she said that she found comfort in the outdoors. I spent a lot of time wandering through the national park, seeing bear and elk and deer and marmot and fox, wolf, going to bat at night. 
even though I couldn't be with very many people, I had a chance to be absolutely quiet with nature. I think it might have ended up being one of the most joyful, caring, sweet times of my life. Many listeners told us that what brought them the most joy was all this time with their family. Sometimes that was frustrating, but it was also the most meaningful and memorable part of the pandemic. This is Jonah from Chicago. I have three children, a seven-year-old daughter, a five-year-old son, and a seven-month-old daughter. With my first two children, I was kind of a relative stranger during the week to them. With our little pandemic baby, I'm seeing all the stages of development and uh, she knows me so much better than any of my older children did at that age. And, but uh, there are all these wonderful moments that uh, you know, I missed out on with my other two. My name is Carrie and I live in Northwest DC. I was able to spend the summer with my parents in upstate New York and rode over 2,000 miles on my bike with my dad, cooked with my mom every night and learned to build furniture. Mary-Kate Bartley, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Porch visits brought me joy. In the early days of COVID, my five siblings and I, all in our 50s, started socially distant visits with my mom, 88, on her porch nearly every weekend. Sadly, we lost our mom, Mamie, on February 5th. Those porch visits were the best thing about the pandemic. 1437, Mamie, you were wonderful. My name is Neil. I live in Cape Town, South Africa, and I'm 22 years old. And um, my mother and I, this was like peak, peak lockdown when we only were going out to shop. We weren't even allowed to exercise. The South African lockdown was pretty strict at one point. A few evenings we danced to music that she listened to when, when she was my age. We danced to Supertramp and uh, Earth, Wind and Fire. Yeah, it was really, really fun. Hey, Post Reports. My name is Brandon, and I'm in Brooklyn, New York. One thing that has brought me joy throughout this pandemic uh, has been my discovery of the handpan. It's a percussive instrument, and its sound is really quite beautiful. I got one for myself to play, and I find that playing it can be a healing experience, even for someone like me, who's a total beginner. So here's a little something. As we come to a full year since so many of our lives changed so dramatically, there is a lot to grieve. But there's also a lot to cherish. Many thanks to all of our listeners for sharing what has kept you afloat, and we hope that this story brings you some joy today, too. 
And that's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Tomorrow on the show, a look back at one year of the pandemic through the eyes of a nurse at Mount Sinai. Oh, COVID's here. And then it felt like we got 10 immediately. And then it felt like it just doubled. And it just went into complete chaos. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, The Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen.